0: This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your
2: theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, and credible. The defense has no problem running out the
1: clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by
0: trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to.
2: What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting?
0: Whatever you've gotta do to make it real, you've gotta do to make it real, but the person who needs convincing is you.
2: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
0: Welcome to today's Trial Lawyer Nation. We are recording live at the AAJ convention here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I have Amy Hall. She is a visual trial strategist out of California. Amy, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Michael. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And thank you for joining us. Before we get started, I just want to go ahead and give a shout out to our sponsor, Law Pods. Rob from Law Pods is actually here. He is recording with us, filming us, and he does all the editing, all the production, creates all the ads that we put on social media. It just makes life so easy for me because all I have to do is sit here and talk to you and he does everything else. So if you're considering doing a podcast, which is a lot of fun, I highly recommend Law Pods. That being said, let's get to Amy. So Amy, tell us a little bit about what is it you do? I mean, there's a whole tribe or almost cult of lawyers Mm -hmm. that absolutely know what you do. But a lot of our audience might not know you yet. So what is it that you do?
1: Well, I think a lot of trial lawyers are probably familiar with using visuals in the courtroom and even in mediation. um, So that idea of demonstrative exhibits or some form of visual is not foreign to most trial lawyers. But visual trial strategy is taking that idea to the next level, using demonstrative exhibits using visuals strategically throughout your case presentation. Visual strategy is demonstrative exhibits that are interrelated, interdependent, and strategically sequenced to support every meaningful point in your case. But what's neat about the visual strategy process is it really is a process, and we start early in case development, which feels upside down to a lot of trial lawyers. Before discovery is closed, sometimes even before the case is filed, we're starting to create the story that the jurors will see.
0: I know in the cases that, uh, I, where I've been fortunate enough to work with you, we actually worked with you and created a bunch of exhibits before we took the first deposition.
1: Isn't that, see, it's so powerful.
0: And uh, none of our cases have gone to verdict where I've worked with you. We've had one where we tried for a week, uh. Uh, but they've all worked too well. <laughs> the defense Darn, gives up. that's uh, a
1: good problem to have.
0: Uh, it's good for my clients. My mm-hmm. clients would rather have the check than the glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've, they've done very well. And even one case where I remember the first case we worked together, everyone in the office told me I was insane for taking the case. I saw it and everyone else was like, it was a case where a, a trailer was parked, partially blocking the lane of travel, but mostly outside the lane of travel. We had a passenger. The driver was unlicensed, mm. not paying attention, on her phone and just ran into the trailer which caused some real harm to the, obviously, to the passenger. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the week, after working with you and, at the time, a, a, a trial strategist named Rodney Jew, everybody understood this was a clear case. This was an awesome case because we laid it out and sequenced mm-hmm. it in a way that explained the liability and made the, the liability of the trucking company so obvious mm-hmm. that everyone got it. And you would like, yeah, of course the driver was negligent, too. That's not what we're here about. She yeah. admits she's negligent. We admit she's negligent. But. The trucking company created the situation. If she wasn't paying attention and there wasn't an 80,000-pound piece of steel blocking the lane of traffic, she would have just driven right by and nothing bad would have happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, the visual strategy process illuminates and exposes perceived weak spots. It also illuminates and exposes the strengths because we hone in on the one thing, that single point of failure, why did it happen? I find that trial lawyers so often get uh, lured into counterpunching with the defense. They get lured into irrelevant uh, issues because you're aggressive. Right. And and you see the whole case, you know it so well. You have the curse of knowledge. You know it forwards and backwards. And the visual strategy process, when you see the exhibits, you say, oh, now I see this is what the juror is going to see if I try to present this way. So we hone in on that single point of failure create the interrelated, interdependent exhibits that teach it. And then at the end, you are left with a suite of trial-ready exhibits. And you can go then uh, fill it out in your discovery process. You know exactly what deposition testimony you need to get now. You need to know exactly what regs you need to teach. You know, whatever the case may be, it really clarifies it and then gets you ready for mediation at trial.
0: So what's the difference between a visual trial strategist like you and maybe, you know, if you go here at the convention, there's all these different companies, they do art, they do Mm -hmm. graphics, but they're not trial strategists.
1: Yeah, like there's a lot of great medical animations and medical illustrations. You know, I see their uh, exhibits. So I guess my criticism, such as it is of like medical illustrations is they're really great at teaching the medicine and the science. But if I'm a juror, I want to know, you know, if I'm looking at, okay, I see these metal screws that are now in his femur, I want to know, well, what difference does that make to his life? What kind of pain does he have? What kind of loss of function does he have? So the medical illustrations are important, you know, with your medical experts, but they don't teach the loss of function. They don't teach how the person's life has been changed. And that's just completely missing. So the the strategy is what's missing.
0: That's so true, you know before I worked with you, almost every case where a client had surgery. I would have an animation of the surgery done, mm-hmm. I would have all these medical illustrations, and I would try the case, and the jury would give me the medical bills and they'd give me a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, because that's what the case was about yeah and now I very rarely animate a back surgery, for example, right because the, the case isn't about the fact he had surgery because surgery's done. Mm-hmm. The cases about what, what, was, what did they have before, what do they have after, how yeah, have they changed. exactly. And so our visual strategy is, after working with you, has totally changed. Before we kind of go into this, you know, the visual strategy, some of these words like single point of failure, mm-hmm. or systems failure, that kind of stuff, I want to talk a little bit about like, your story. How did you get into this?
1: Sometimes in life, there's just this feeling of like destiny. Like, everything has led me to this point or what I'm doing. And that's how I feel about this work, because I have an interesting background, I think. In a college, many moons ago, I worked as a research assistant on a cognitive science textbook that's still in print. It's in several editions later at this point. So I started learning about how people think, how people make decisions. After college, I went into business for myself, doing graphic arts, visuals, marketing and communications for companies all over the country, all over the world. I began working for the gambling industry, doing game design. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was a, a real education in emotion, risk-reward ratios, decision-making. The gambling industry really has that dialed in. Oh, and I, I also designed a curricula for the University of Cincinnati, their early multimedia Program that's what it was called back then in the 90s about interface. Um, so I learned how to teach about visual display and communications. So all of that was like a backdrop for when I met Rodney Jew, the famed litigation strategist.
0: And who is Rodney? Not you know a lot of our listeners know who Rodney Jew is, but not everybody does.
1: He is a litigation strategist who's been active for many years and has worked on every kind of case. He's a A genius, a luminary among trial lawyers. He taught me so much about how to strategically analyze a case like a laser beam and then teach it visually because, for better or for worse, trials are decided by jurors, lay people, people who have no background in what you're trying to teach them, varying levels of life experience and education and they probably don't even wanna be there. How do we teach? How do we persuade? How do we get the jury to understand, learn, remember, and care about what we're trying to do? Rodney understood that and understands that so well. So it was just fortuitous that we came together, and I still remember our first meeting, and it was just like we hit the ground running like we had known each other in a past life or something. We had so many shared interests and passions about problem solving, about visual communication, about persuasion, and working with, on behalf of plaintiffs, it's being on the right side of history, and that's very satisfying work. So we worked together side by side for over 13 years, working with firms from all over the country who would come out to work with us, create the visual strategy for their cases, And I'm now in my fourth year of working independently, doing this work on my own.
0: And so when we get to work with you, uh, let's talk about what what is the process of analyzing the case to come up with what our visual trial strategy is gonna be?
1: That's a big question. It is. (laughs) Well, we always have to begin at the beginning. Until you make a problem clear, you're never gonna solve it. So the first thing that we do when we work together is the lawyer must write a two-page neutral statement of the case. A neutral statement is simply that, the neutral telling of the case, not advocating, not calling the other side a bunch of crumb bums, but telling the story almost like a documentary for someone who doesn't know anything about the case. Because when I'm brought in, I don't know anything about the case. I don't want your complaint. I don't want a banker box full of documents. I want that two-page neutral statement. That process begins to distill the case right away. Just that process of agonizing to get it all into two pages, double-spaced, no tiny typeface, no itty-bitty margins. That process begins to distill the case. And then hand-in-hand with that is the list of landmines. So a landmine is an idea that will kill your case if the judge or jury believe it to be true. It doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't even have to be ethical. So that could be preconceived notions or even racism or cultural judgments about your plaintiff. It could be factual weak spots that you think your case may have or strengths that you think the other side may have. And you think, oh, gosh, why are we listing these landmines? It's it's such a painful process to see all of these ideas that could kill your case, could sink your case. And could kill or sink your case in terms of liability or damages, because if you prevail on liability, but you get a dollar in damages, you know, that's a loss for your client. Yeah. So you list them out and it's like, oh, what a depressing process. Why are we doing this? The reason you're doing it is because now you know exactly the attacks the defense is going to use. We don't want to counterpunch with them on all of these. Some of them are completely irrelevant. But when you see them listed like that, you know where they're going to fight. That is, it's a relief, really. They're not just swirling around in your head anymore. And if you write 10 to 20 landmines, and I prefer 20 over 10 because you get beyond that low-hanging fruit, then you might put to words for the very first time something that's just been in the back of your mind that's maybe been bothering you about this case. But when you see it, those are the first steps, the landmine list and the neutral statement, the first steps towards beginning to unpack your case, take it apart so we can put it back together as strong as possible visually.
0: So then what's the next step?
1: Oh, you want step number three. <laughs> so you've got step number one and two. It's step number three. Well, let's see. If I could bottom line that, it would be finding the single point of failure.
0: What is a single point of failure?
1: Often when lawyers come to me with a case, there will be, I don't know, a bunch of defendants, three, four, five named defendants. There will be perhaps multiple theories and the sense I get if I'm putting on my skeptical juror hat, which I have to do, is these people don't know what their case is about. And they're just throwing spaghetti against the wall. The lawyer says, well, okay, this is what happened. This is, this is what went. No, but if you don't like that, you know, try this one. You're like, wait, these, these are kind of mutually exclusive. It's got to be one or the other. Or wait, what's this other idea you have? And the lawyer knows the case, knows it so well. There's so much. And they have uncovered, they've turned over every stone for every possibility. So they get a high five for doing a lot of good homework. And trial lawyers are really good at digging deep, turning over every stone. But if I'm a juror, I need to know why did this happen and why should this have been prevented? If you're telling me this shouldn't have happened, I need to know what should the defendant have done to have prevented this. So if you look back in time, no matter what the case is, it could be elder abuse, products, birth injury, trucking. I work on all kinds of cases. If you look back far enough in time, you will find that one turning point, that single point of failure, before which the world was just going along happily, and after which it was never gonna be the same again. And that's where we wanna focus the case.
0: And I think one thing I learned from you is needing to look further back in time than what's obvious on that single Mm -hmm. point of failure. Because on a trucking case, for example, which is most of what I do, it's the obvious is, okay, someone, an 18-wheeler doesn't stop. You know, that's like traffic's backed up on the interstate. 18-wheeler doesn't stop. We're in. Someone kills someone. And some people will focus on that truck driver. That truck driver should have been paying attention. That truck driver Mm should have been sleeping more or not being on the phone. But that's typically what the driver did in the seconds before the crash. Mm -hmm. Is not what you're talking about.
1: No, not at all. So, I want to know, well, why was that? Why did the driver do that? Why was the driver driving unsafely? So then we start looking a little further back. We might look at uh, the training of the company. We might look at hiring, retention. We start looking back and we see there is a system failure. This wasn't about one rogue driver. This is about a company that is operating unsafely Maybe this isn't even their first rodeo. Maybe they've had other crashes for the same reason. It could be they're not doing pre-trip inspections. It could be they're not maintaining their equipment, and you have to look far enough back in time to find that.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, it. takes It's takes a lot of work. It does, and and a lot of focus. Now, is this something that people can just do? I'm going to spend thirty minutes today and tomorrow. Maybe I can put an hour into it, and maybe next week I'll do another fifteen.
1: That's a great question. In my experience, this process works best if you eliminate distractions, you get your team together, and you work hard on it together. Working with me, my model is I work on one case, one week. We don't work on anything else. And I call what I do these days uh, the Benihana of demonstrative exhibits because we work up the case together with the team, unpacking the case, putting the case back together, and I'm creating demonstrative exhibits in real time as we work together. So you can see, sometimes exhibits sound nice in you know, in my mind's eye, Yeah, I bet that's going to look good. We start working on it, we're like, wait a second, we've got a major factual gap here. These things don't add up. Well, jurors are going to be really sensitive to that. So we have to work it out and we do it in real time. So I'm, wor- I'm creating the exhibits as we're working together, hashing out the issues, wordsmithing, words matter. So words are a big part of exhibits. These aren't just images. They're images and words together. And that's how people learn best. And at the end of the week, it's very typical for the the team to leave with 30 to 50 trial-ready demonstrative exhibits.
0: Yeah, that's so important. Uh, And it's hard to do because, you know, we we all get too busy. But if you're going to be, you know, blessed with the opportunity to work on a major case... Mm -hmm. You just have to block out that uninterrupted time with your cell phone off, not checking your email mm-hmm. uh, to go work on that case. And really, because you, you don't, it takes time to dig deep. It takes time to, to process and, and kind of sequentially get something and then dig deeper and then get the next step and dig deeper.
1: Well said. It's a, um, an iterative process to take the time to pause and reflect, to dig deeper and getting your team on the same page. I work on cases where once we get together, I'm surprised that the members of the team maybe don't even know some of the, the things that the other part of the team have been working on. Because cases typically have a lot of data, a lot of information, and very often in mass torts, they're like silos of information. And the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing sometimes. Or even on a small case, it's, members of the team may have access to insights or information that aren't known to the group. So when we work on it together, spend the time, block out distractions, we can create that interrelated, interdependent sequence. It's never about just one exhibit standing alone, one visual, okay, this is what my case is about. I got it all on one visual. It's gotta be one topic, one visual, and then we string them together it's like and vine to vine. It's an airtight product of exhibits in the end. And the jury really appreciates that.
0: Now, you talk about working in group. Do you think it's better to just work with just the lawyer or how big of a group do you like to work with?
1: That's a great question. I like all members of the team as long as we don't exceed about five people. Because any more than that, it's a lot of cooks. It's a lot of cooks. And to get uh, consensus, to be able to find the best ideas, we've got to be able to have fruitful discussions and be able to move forward. So I limit uh, the sessions and my sessions are by Zoom. Five is, is, I'd say, pretty much the magic number, give or take. So I love when paralegals and legal assistants are part of the team the, when we work together because they often have their finger on the pulse of the information. They're in the trenches with it, and they know it really well. They can put their fingers on something I need, an exhibit, a website, an authoritative source. Boom. I get it into the exhibit. We're writing the words that go with it that give it strategic relevance, uh, photographs of the the plaintiff. We can get all that in there real time. It's a very dynamic, fast-paced process.
0: And yeah, I, I found it was so important to have, para, when I've worked with you, to have mm-hmm. the paralegals and legal assistants, because one, as much as we lawyers try to spend time with our clients, mm-hmm. they spend more time with to clients. Yep. And so they know things about the client that we just don't know. Uh, the other thing is, I think they, they're not as afflicted with what I call the curse of knowledge. That's true. Uh, they don't, they see things closer to what a labor is. Now they're still in the business, mm-hmm. but they see things a little closer to what a juror might see. I agree. Because that's the problem with I'm a trekking lawyer, and I know what the regs are, and so I automatically go from A to Z. I'm mm-hmm. right there, and the juror's not going to be there, so I have to come back and try right. to go back with that beginner's mind and think, you know, what would someone who's never dealt with this do? Mm-hmm. What would I have done 20 years ago when I didn't know what I was doing?
1: Yeah, trial lawyers out there, be grateful and uh, communicate that gratitude to your paralegals and legal assistants, because I see over and over how important they are to the process of working up a case and for liability and damages. They're incredible resources in your firm. And sometimes I think maybe they're, they're a little undervalued. Uh, so if you're appreciating your paralegals and legal assistants, then high five.
0: Yeah, And, you know, that one of my favorite Rodney Jew sayings is no one's as smart as everyone. Yeah. You know, and some of the best trial ideas I've had, some of the best business ideas I've had have not come from me. Hmm. And if, if I didn't learn to put my ego in check mm-hmm. and create an environment where other people are free to speak and, and give their ideas, mm-hmm. uh. I would have been, you know, so much worse off overall. Well said. So you're getting there. Let's just talk about maybe some of the types of exhibits that are useful. Let's just start with liability.
1: Okay. The first exhibit set that I always work on in every case, it's a tool for me to help orient myself in the case. Because remember, for me, everything's new. All I've read is the neutral statement in the landmines, maybe had a small discussion with the lawyers. But right away, I can hear there's a lot of information, there's a lot of data. How can we distill all that into like an elevator pitch in a way? And from that wellspring, we can decide and determine what else we need to teach and build. So we create what's called the formula. And that is a three exhibit set. And I strongly advocate for using real live physical boards in the courtroom over electronic display. That's another topic. So it's a three exhibit set. You would put three boards up on three easels. So if you can imagine that staging in your mind's eye. And the first exhibit is the anchor. And I'll explain what that is in a moment. And then there's a little plus sign. So what we're creating is like a little math formula. A plus B equals C. So the first exhibit, we'll say we'll call it the anchor, plus the center exhibit is the link, equals the third exhibit is the payoff. These are terms that Rodney. These are insights. Uh, the insight that Rodney gave us gave the the of spar. anchor plus link equals payoff. What is? It, what do I mean? So anchor is an unassailable fact, the pre-existing condition, just the way the world is the way the, wor- or the way the world was and existed before the incident. The link is the bad acts of the defendant. That's what your case is about. So the anchor might be a duty. It might be what the company is supposed to do, what all companies are supposed to do, according to the regs. The link is when you breach that duty. You didn't do what you're supposed to do, bad company or bad actor. And then the payoff is the damages. So anchor plus link equals payoff. Right now I have three buckets and every single fact of your case now falls into one of those three buckets. So now I know I got to teach what was going on with the plaintiff beforehand. I need to teach what all the regs were or the uh, laws, the basis for how the world is supposed to work. Now I can put all that in that bucket. No, I need to teach that. The link is the bad actions of the defendant. So now I can zero in on how they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And then the payoff, that's damages. And I know I have to teach all the damages stuff, how their life has been forever altered.
0: Could you give an example of an anchor link payoff formula?
1: Yeah. So in a trucking case, for instance, the first exhibit, the anchor, would be trucking companies are required to have safe drivers to transport products by tractor trailer. That's true. That's true. Right. No one can argue with that one. No yeah. one can argue with that. And then you have regs, you have state CDL stuff, you, know, you have federal stuff where you can teach all that. It's also common sense. It feels non-controversial. Right. Sure, you can teach the basis of it, but from a common sense perspective, if I say trucking companies are required to have safe drivers to transport products by tractor-trailer, the juror's going to say, yeah, that makes sense. So then the second exhibit, the link, so... That first exhibit, what I just said, would have a plus sign right on the exhibit. And when you put that up, people are like, plus? Plus what? The second one, the link, would say, trucking company puts an unsafe driver behind the wheel of its tractor-trailer. And that's it's, it's kind of shocking. Like, wait a second. They're required by common courtesy and human dignity and the law to put safe drivers on the road, So if a truck driver puts an unsafe truck driver on the road, they'll complete this equation for you. Then you put up the equals and that equals harm. Now you'll notice, Michael, that all of this is in the generic. I haven't named any names. This is just true. This is true out in the world. If because companies are required to do this, if any company were to put an unsafe driver behind the wheel, the result is going to be harm. So then we teach the formula again, now using the specific names of the plaintiff and defendant in your case. So it's still true that trucking companies are required to have safe drivers to transport products by tractor-trailer, but now we can say ABC Trucking Company put an unsafe driver behind the wheel of its tractor-trailer, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I'm going to demonstrate to you. And then we have lots and lots of stuff we need to teach to show how that happened through negligent hiring negligent training, negligent retention. And then the harm board gets replaced with your plaintiff. So Bob Jones suffered permanent life-altering injury. And so now I don't know anything about what happened to this guy, but I'm a little bit scared. And because I've learned it in the generic first, I'm a little bit scared for myself because any trucking company that puts unsafe drivers behind the wheel, that could affect you or me or someone I love. So it's not golden rule, but the juror's mind will go there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What I love about it is, is it does simplify the case to that one point of failure. Because, you know, we, and I think it's two things. One is law school. Law school teaches us if you want to get an A, you need to spot every possible issue, list every possible role, and then list the arguments on both sides. That's how mm-hmm. we, you do well in law school. And then I think the other thing for trial lawyers, it's fear. We don't mm-hmm. trust ourselves, yeah. the jury, and the story. And so we're afraid that if they might not buy our strongest case. And so we got to list every other possible way to win, which actually just really dilutes.
1: It dilutes it. It weakens the case. It confuses the jury. And a confused juror is a juror who casts his or her vote for the other side. Yeah.
0: So once we, we get the, I guess, the general, general framework of this is where this case is going, mm-hmm. how do we do the specific, you know, we sometimes have to teach jurors like, You know, what are the things that trucking companies need to look Mm -hmm. at? How What are the standards for evaluating a driver? Uh, How do we teach that visually?
1: So, yeah, we really want to simplify that. And regs, oh gosh, they're written in this legalese, and who knows how to interpret all that. If I'm a juror, I'm already like half asleep. Uh, We have a exhibit format called a document deconstruction. And I won't go into all the details. It's very hard to describe. (laughs) It's a... On a podcast, you can talk about things that you can't see, but it simplifies these authoritative sources and these documents that we need to quote. And then we put a a box, I call it a chatty yellow box, and I call it that because it's the takeaway. So there might be a lot of legal stuff, but how do you interpret that into plain language so we can paraphrase and illuminate the takeaway of what you're trying to teach? It's hard to describe, but it's very simple in execution to simplify uh, complex things.
0: One of the best ways, not just for the opening, but one of the things that has really changed my practice is now, you know, typically to get in a, a lot of what we call anchors or, you know, the reliable sources mm-hmm. or learned treatises would be the legal term mm-hmm. uh, that we want to base our rules on. You need to often need an expert witness to do that. And I used to just call my expert and my expert would be testifying based on their experience, education and training. And it's kind of like I'm paying somebody to say something and they say what I want them to say and it's totally not persuasive. Now we will only work with experts who will have work with us to create document deconstructions and have a source, a reliable source that's not from litigation, that's not something they wrote Mm -hmm. for every point that they're going to make.
1: Yeah, that's excellent.
0: And it slows them down. It doesn't make it just about them, because everyone jurors are smart. They know that both sides can pay people for enough money and get someone to say anything.
1: Exactly. The battle of the experts is will shut a juror down. Say, well, gosh, this guy sounds really smart and he has a lot of credibility and, and this gal sounds really smart and she has a lot of credibility. Well, I guess they cancel each other out. Oh, well, I guess I'll cast my vote for the defense.
0: Yeah, I'll take a dry, boring person backed up by authority. Mm-hmm. If we can show the authority persuasively, simply... Where Simply. people are like, yes, duh, over someone who's a char- charming, but it's just winging it yeah, or just uh, you know, taking it
1: Or saying, it out of the air. yeah, saying, trust me. Yeah. I've been doing this a long time. Trust me. It's like, mm, I don't know about that.
0: And the defense rarely, one, they don't cite authority that often. And when they do, when we actually read it, it often doesn't say what mm, they say it says, yeah. which creates a whole new uh, set mm-hmm. of opportunities uh, to
1: win a case. I like how you describe like the duh moment. A case should feel simple. It, should feel, it shouldn't feel super complicated. No, no, you really have to. It's super complicated. You wouldn't understand. Jurors, like, I don't know if it's that complicated. How could you prevent something like this? It has to feel simple. And in my experience, even seemingly giant complex cases really do come down, distill into a few simple ideas. And that's the beauty of the formula that the exhibit sequence I just described It's the first thing that the juror sees, and they say, oh, what a relief. Right. This case is simple. Now I know that everything I'm going to learn is just going to fall into these three simple categories. I can keep track of that. So it gives you permission to teach them lots and lots of things because they're all going to drop into those three categories. And the juror, right now, right away, you begin to earn juror trust. From the very first exhibits you put up, when you say, You know, the other side may say this is really complicated and really complex, but I'm here to teach you, to tell you that what happened in this case was actually very simple. And then you have permission to teach them lots of complexities because they all bubble up into a very simple formula.
0: And I think complexity is typically because we haven't taken the time to master something.
1: Mm -hmm. Because
0: once you master it, it's simple. Mm -hmm. But it just, it's going, again, it's going through the process. Mm -hmm. And I think complexity is also Again, of course, it's a defense tool. The defense loves complexity. They but, love it. But for us, it's, it's a fear thing. It's an ego thing. Like, well, it can't just be simple. Then anyone can do it. Then I'm not some great mm. lawyer. And, and I think a lot of, like if we go, to, we're here at a conference. I mean, I think there may be some presenters that want to make things sound really complex. Mm-hmm. So the audience thinks they can't do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, I'm really smart. I know a bunch of complex stuff. Look how smart I am. They look how complicated this is. You know, you got to just get that ego in check and make it about the jurors, not about you.
1: Well, if you, if you want to feel good about yourself, know that it's actually, it's hard to make things simple. Yeah. It's a real challenge. And lawyers' minds, you do get conditioned in law school and through practice to not distill things into their simplicity. It's a very challenging process. It really requires pausing and reflecting. And all the other side needs to do is create confusion and doubt. That's that's easy. Yeah. (laughs) Simplifying things to their essence, distilling to their essence, that is challenging.
0: So you've made a comment before, you like printed boards. So there's, you know, some people love PowerPoint or, Mm -hmm. you know, putting graphics on a screen. It's easy. You know, you don't have to carry around a bunch of stuff. You can do it at the last minute. Some people like the idea of putting up a flip chart and writing Mm -hmm. as they go. You believe in Mm pre-printed physical boards. How come?
1: I have so many reasons, so many really good cognitive, well-researched reasons that have been borne out in, I've worked on over 400 cases, and not all of those went to trial, but a lot of them did. And I get so much feedback from the lawyers I work with. So every time I hear back from lawyers, the firmness of my opinion about this even grows stronger. So you're right, on-screen presentation is easy. And yeah, boards are heavy. And yeah, you got to get them printed out ahead of time and that costs a lot of money and all those things are true. But don't confuse what's easy for you with what the juror needs to understand, learn, remember, and care about your case. And jurors learn best from boards, real live physical boards. There's a lot of great reasons. Some of them are very practical. Jurors don't like when lawyers fumble with technology. And I hear nightmare stories about this just worked. I can't believe it. I'm pressing the button. Your honor, I need another half hour. Oh boy. Jurors don't like that at all. Boards are solid state. They don't flicker. They're high resolution. There's no glare. They always function. So right away from a very practical standpoint, that is better for a jury. And it's better for the lawyer too. It reduces anxiety for the lawyer. Flip charts, I'm, I'm not a fan of. I know a lot of lawyers like the the staging of that. It can the danger is it can look like you're making it up as you go, like you're just going with how the wind blows. When you have pre-printed exhibits, the jury's very sensitive to the fact that you look very prepared, and you look very prepared because you are very prepared. Your case is, it's like set in stone. It's You've printed it out in advance because you know what your case is about. You're not just responding on the fly like, oh, gosh, this new thing came up. Nope. you know what this case is about. It's, It's a truism. It's a truth. So they can just watch and learn. There's also a physicality of interacting with the boards because you can stand right next to your board, point to where you'd like to direct the juror's attention. The juror is looking at you and your exhibit in one eyeful. They're not looking up on the big screen and then looking over at you or looking down in their little jury box monitor and then hopefully looking back up at you occasionally. You can watch the juror's eyes as they're watching the exhibit. They're watching you and the exhibit in one. It establishes you as a trusted advisor, as somebody that they can learn from, and you can check in on the juror's eyes. Oh, gosh, he's not quite getting it. I'm going to spend a little more time here. Where you can say, "I know what you're thinking." The first time I looked at this, I thought, "Really, is this how things work?" Let me tell you a little more about it, et cetera.
0: Yeah, and just for our listeners, I mean, I believe you can do different things, but you need to be intentional about why you're doing
1: it. Exactly. It be at a
0: convenience. Right. But make sure you go to your courtroom and look at the geometry and Absolutely. where. Not only like where do you have room to put them? Because mm-hmm. unfortunately, there's some courtrooms we found they just they're, they're too tiny, tiny, mm-hmm. and you can't put three easels. So we have to think about okay, how do we how do we change this we mm-hmm. still want to use printed boards the other thing is not only where they where they sit but then sit in every one of the jurors chairs mm-hmm. like sit your tripod up you know our tripods hopefully yep. put the boards up there and make sure you can see them that every single juror can mm-hmm. see them uh and you sometimes have to adjust the angle you have to adjust the distance right uh, y'all taught us to do the boards big enough where they're easy to read mm-hmm. the font is big enough where it's easy to read that's important but also just the angles can be weird and you know there's One place where I've tried a lot of cases, Cameron County, Texas, where all 12 jurors sit in, like, it's a row of 12. Wow. And so there is no place in the courtroom where all 12 people can see one exhibit. Mm. And so if you're going to do there, you have two choices. One, you can set up two sets of boards. Mm. Or you can do it to one one third of the jury and then do it to the next third. And so we learned to, like, hold the exhibit Mm -hmm. and, you know, get up and show it to these four people and then these four people and these four people, and make sure you respect that they each get it, because there's nothing worse than the juror that gets left out. You're teaching the other people, but not teaching them.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Jurors are individuals. We may perceive them as a group because they're going to make a decision as a group, but each individual, you have to teach to each juror.
0: Yeah, and so the other thing I really think is important is to practice with the boards. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to be comfortable with them, uh, not just with using them in the words, but the physicality of, mm-hmm. of how you have them ordered, mm-hmm. changing them, moving them, where if you don't rehearse, right. it's not going to work well. And if you're going to use boards with a witness, you need to work with the witness in advance. So Absolutely. it's not just you putting the, the words in the witness's mouth, but the witness is using the board to teach.
1: Right. Yeah. So you can um, have a line of questioning with the witness and say, you know, you and I work together Uh, before today to prepare exhibits based on your report is that correct yes that's correct and are these those exhibits yes these are those exhibits and so then it's like oh yeah well that's the experts thing yep Uh, absolutely
0: and just for my listeners just do these boards fairly and accurately depict blank would they be helpful to the jury in explaining blank and then that's that's your key say though you get two yeses there Mm -hmm. then then they come in i've never not been able to use them when we've just had the expert answer those two questions in the affirmative excellent Okay, I want to go on to to damages. I mean, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but we try to keep the podcast between 45 minutes and an hour. Got it. So let's just talk about a little bit about how we visually depict our clients' harm.
1: So I talked a little bit about medical illustrations and how I can understand that they can have a place, but I do think they're overused because they don't communicate to the jury, well, how is this person's life different? Like I have a a dear friend who had a a terrible accident and she had to have surgery and she has all these metal plates in her leg. And if you saw all that in a medical illustration, you'd say, oh no, that's terrible. But then you say, well, how's she doing today? Oh, she's great. Yeah. She's back to rollerblading and she's bicycling. She doesn't have any pain. So that as a juror, I'm like, well, well then who cares? So I'm not drawn in to care about this person's story and why I need to take action to make a difference. So we always want to talk about loss of function. That's what we want to show. It's what we de- want to demonstrate. Not the plates in their femur or S- sometimes these medical illustrations are very scary. They look like, uh, remember Netter illustrations, the, how uh, complex these medical textbooks that teach the anatomy of the human body. It's like a juror says, I didn't know all that was even inside of us much less like, is this the way it's supposed to look? I don't know. But I want to know, well, what does a TBI mean to you? What does it mean to, to this person? Well, they can no longer work. They can no longer, they love to play softball. They can't do that anymore. They can't work. They can't uh, communicate with their children anymore. Oh, gosh, that sounds horrible. So now I want to know about that loss of function. The only way to teach loss of function is to teach what their function was before, So what was their life like before the injury? Traveled with his wife, played with his grandkids, played on the softball league, all the things that made his life rich. And it was his life. It doesn't have to be fancy. You know, so it's your plaintiff's life, whatever it is, stamp collecting. I don't care what the plaintiff loved to do. If they love to do it, that's what you want to teach. in damages, that's the before. Remember, that's the anchor, the before all this happened. And then the bad acts of the defendants, then we show what they're left with. And now it's, have to stay home all the time, can't play softball anymore, can't can't do the stamp collecting he loves. Whatever it was he loved to do, now what he's left with, it's stark, by comparison, empty. The pain that he's left with, for instance.
0: Yeah, and one of the big changes, again, in our practice since working with you is now from our first client meeting, we are telling their client, like, you know, first of all, that's part of my intake question. Like, mm. what did you love to do before? Mm. What's different now? But it, it takes the clients for a while to get, because they want to talk about, because that's what they think they're supposed to talk about, well, my pain,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, my difficulty working. And like, well, let's, before we get to that, what did you love doing? before? Wow. What brought joy to your life? What did you do when you get off work? And some people's like, why just work? You spend a little more time with oh, them. yeah. Like, you, you find out. And then we say, okay, well, do you have any pictures of you doing mm-hmm. the things you love to do, and typically we found, and then I asked, who did you do those things with? And typically, I find the pictures are f- on the phones and the social media of the people they did those things with. The right. clients aren't taking pictures of themselves right. running mm-hmm. or playing with their grandkids. It's their child takes a picture of grandpa playing with their kid, and mm-hmm. the child has that picture. Right. And so then we have to meet the kids and talk about what it is, and then get them. The, usually, they just get their phone out and they air drop me pictures. You Excellent know, while we're meeting with them and that gives us the tools we need to create these exhibits but you have to spend the time to find the story right. because if we you know you can be the most brilliant artists and strategists in the world we don't bring you the tools yeah the raw materials need. exactly you have the tools the raw materials yeah
1: I love that you're doing that right at intake it's again earning juror trust is important earning client trust is important absolutely they to find that connection early on, is going to make every part of developing their case easier for you and more fruitful
0: and you have to ask them over and over again because they don't think that when you they feel put on the spot they're they're mm-hmm. coming up with something and it's when you talk to them was there anything else can you think of that do you have any more photos yeah. and so you know it's just you know just actually one of our requirements is when we do our initial disclosures when we first provide information to the, mm-hmm. the defendant i want other witnesses i want photos mm-hmm. of before and after mm-hmm. i want i want one, I don't want to be just getting it last minute. I don't want that stress. I want right. us to be able to start creating our, our visuals early. But also, I want the other side to know that from the get-go, we're getting ready to try this case. Yeah. Like, you have a way out of this by paying money. But if you don't do that, this isn't a case where we're going to go and see what you have to offer and think about it. No, we're getting ready for trial. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can pay us off and get us to quit. But if you don't, we're, we're all in.
1: Yeah, it's great that you start that process early because you're absolutely right. More comes out as it, it's all an iterative process. So it's not like, we're going to have one 45-minute meeting with the client and then we'll get everything we need. It doesn't work like that because they're not thinking in those terms. So it'll be a week later. They'll be like, you know, I remember you asked me that one question and I thought of something. They'll come back to you or they'll bring new photos to you. They'll give new information to you.
0: Now, I will confess I started doing that because I had so many great photos being given to me two weeks before trial mm. when it was too late to use them because right. <laughs> mm-hmm. we had to produce them at least... In Texas, it's typically at least 30 days before. Sometimes mm-hmm. earlier, depending on their order. So, as much as I, I could sound brilliant by saying I have all these rules, I have all these rules because it messed up when we didn't have
1: them. Well, you you learn from experience for sure, and I also like how you talked about. You hinted at the the power of the exhibits in mediation. So, I advise sharing a very cherry-picked, tiny selection of exhibits in mediation. You'll have much more developed. But just give them like a hint at what you're doing. You look so prepared, and they'll say, hey, "These look like trial exhibits." And they'll say, "No, no, no. These are these are for mediation. You know, at five o'clock today, there'll be trial exhibits, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, right now, we just want to show you what we're developing."
0: Yeah, especially if it's you know a more significant case, and you have people there that actually have authority, not just. Mm-hmm. And uh, oftentimes, there's like a primary insurance carrier that's defending the case, mm-hmm. and then they have the excess people that are kind of getting everything filtered through multiple layers. And, you know, they don't always get the full picture. So, when they go there to mediation and they see that you are ready for trial, you have some trial exhibits, and the people that are at the big level, they recognize the format. They mm-hmm. know, okay, mm-hmm. they've, they've worked with Rodney or Amy. They know that these people are going to try it right. They know what they're doing. It scares the heck out of
1: them. Yeah, good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah,
0: it really does. And they, Like I said, the people at the, the senior... People at the big, you know, AIG, the other big
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: excess insurance companies, they yeah. recognize yeah. y'all's work. They, and so they, they, they know like, my work. It, uh, it just puts you in a tribe of like, okay, th- these are the people that we have to pay big money to because they're gonna be ready to try, to try the case. Mm-hmm.
2: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries, and would like to partner with our firm, Please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show.
0: So you not only have the graphic art and the, the litigation strategy background, but you also have a cognitive science
1: background. Mm-hmm.
0: So, as far as like how we learn, how we make decisions, why is it important to have visuals?
1: Great question. So yeah, when you hear about my background, what led me into this work, you may think, wow, she's just bounced all over the place. You know, gambling and cognitive science and what do do all these things have in common? If you think about it, you can see the thread that runs through it. And it has to do with problem solving and human decision making. So what do visuals have to do with that? Vision is fundamental to how humans understand, learn, remember, and care about anything. So... It is a completely non-controversial neuroscience fact that at least half of the brain is devoted to seeing and interpreting what we see. And there's a quote, I don't know it verbatim, from a leading uh, professor of physiology that says there are more neurons devoted to seeing and interpreting what we see than all other sensory modalities combined, including language. So the, the human brain... This, the pride of our species is capable of doing so much. The vast majority of it is devoted to seeing and interpreting what we see. And this was very important from an evolutionary standpoint. It's just the way the human brain is wired. And you could say, well, there's different styles of learning. Some people learn well kinesthetically, and you know, through physical activity or through listening. We all l- use all these modalities to learn. But fundamentally, the human animal is a visual animal. Language is also important. So that's why in the Exhibits, we merge, we unite the visual and the verbal to create the most power. In terms of comprehension, it's key. In terms of memory, and I think this is the the big lost opportunity of not using visual strategy throughout your trial, is memory. Because there's a lot to learn in a case for a juror that has never been exposed to any of this material before. So there's a cognitive principle called the pictorial superiority effect. You know, leave it to science to come up with a, a fancy name for something that's really very simple. It just means if you see something, you remember it better than if you just hear it. So they, they've done a study that when exposed to information, just verbally, orally, you know, orally, listening to it, people can remember about 10% of it three days later. But if you just add a picture to that same information, three days later, the retention soars to 65%. So from 10% memory to remembering 65% of the content. So it really helps jurors keep track of what you're trying to teach them better if you give them a lot of visuals to anchor their understanding. Also, attention. Jurors are tuning in and out, no matter how interesting you are, no matter how interesting your case is. Even if just for moments, but probably longer than that. They're thinking about what they're going to have for dinner they're thinking about how the chair is uncomfortable. They're thinking about what they're going to wear to court tomorrow. Odds and ends that float through our minds all the time. The mind wanders about 30% of the time. That's a lot. Might a little more than that. <laughs> so when the juror tunes back into you, when you're up there telling your fascinating case and you're being very compelling in your presentation, are they going to feel confused? Are they going to feel left behind? Are they, going to, are they even going to understand what you're talking about? So when they tune in and out, if you have visuals to anchor your understanding, anchor their understanding, they will feel, again, you'll become a trusted advisor to them and you won't lose them as you're teaching them how your case fits together.
0: Especially when you use the same visual more than once through the trial, it Mm -hmm. becomes one of your rock. You know, you have your, some you might use once, but some you're going to keep going back to over and over. And then it really becomes comfortable.
1: Yeah. We call those benchmark exhibits or keystone exhibits either term works, and you think, oh, I don't want to show them something they've already seen. They love it when you show them something they've already seen. It gives them uh, confidence. They say, oh, ah, uh, yeah, I, re- I know this. I remember this. This made sense to me when I heard it. So it just gives them that little, like, boost, like, I know what's going on. I know this stuff. And it really helps link and associate all that you're trying to teach them. If there's a lot they need to learn, when you bring up the keystone, when you bring up the benchmark exhibit, They can say, oh, this is how that relates to that. This is how that relates to that. Another example of why it's superior to use boards, because you can have multiple boards up simultaneously, hopefully, if your courtroom is big enough. You can't do that on screen. Everything's in a line. Well, learning doesn't always work linearly.
0: And then you can also leave them out. Mm -hmm. And so, and then when when, when the defense comes up for their part, then they always go turn them all around. Ah, I love that. I love it because the juror's like, oh, they don't want us to see that. Then we right. turn it back around. They read it again because now they're, I want to see this again because the other side doesn't want me to see it. I right. mean, that's what, you know, anytime that we object or turn something around, they always spark the curiosity. What is mm-hmm. it they don't want me to see? Exactly. What, what do they not want me to hear? It is just, it's such a fun way to practice.
1: Mm. Yeah, this is such important work. I love working with plaintiff's lawyers. I love working on behalf of clients. It's As somebody who's a visual problem solver, this is, this is the highest work. It makes the biggest difference in people's lives as individuals and it also changes how things get done in the world. It, it changes law, it changes uh, industry standards and practices to make things safer Absolutely. for all of us. I, don't, I can't imagine a more important way to apply these principles.
0: So we've been asking our listeners, and I appreciate everyone for hanging in with us, to listen to us talk about visuals, (laughs) but it's so much better if you can actually see them. Mm -hmm. Do you have a website where people can actually go look at some examples of what we've been talking about?
1: I don't have a lot of examples up on my website, but my website, amyghall.com, A-M-Y-G-H-A-L-L dot com, introduces what I do and why I do it for plaintiff's lawyers.
0: Now, obviously, the ultimate is to work with you and do a four-day session, but you
1: are booked. I am booked, yeah. Demand is high. It's a good problem to have, but I'm just one person. And because I work on one week, one case, you can do the math. There's only so many cases I can work on per year. I have many loyal, faithful clients who have seen in their own practice how this work makes a difference, so they come back again and again. It becomes a, a little bit of a barrier for entry for new folks uh, who I'd love to work with and who want to work with me.
0: Yeah. And I found that it's been one issue we have in our firm is that we have lawyers that have gone through the experience of spending Mm -hmm. a week working with you and we have lawyers that haven't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so important to us that we all speak the same language. We all, everyone understands the why of what we're doing, Mm -hmm. not just kind of trying to get it by osmosis. Right. But you are actually offering now something to help teach what you do so we can do it ourselves. Absolutely. Uh, Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So everything, and you hinted at it, everything that I do, I want to do what works. You know, that's what we all want to do. It's what trialers want to do. We want to do what works. And all the philosophy and theory in the world is very interesting, learning new techniques about what works. But brass tacks, practical tools, I want to put this to work right now. I want to do this in my cases. I'm one person. So when people call and I'm not able to work with them because of my time constraints, I decided it was time to codify all this, get it down into a curriculum. So I've created a courses, they are State Bar of California CLE courses, and many states recognize State Bar of California CLE credits one-to-one, including New York and New Jersey, many other states. I always say check with your State Bar to confirm. But I came up with what I call trialstrategyacademy.com, where I have three Visual strategy courses, visual strategy foundations, and then two in-depth deep dive courses, one on liability and one on damages. These are for plaintiffs, attorneys only, and their teams, their paralegals and legal assistants. It's great to bring them up to speed so that the whole team speak in the same language, versed in these principles, and knows how to apply them. So the courses, uh, in total, it's 13 CLE credits, so it's a lot of content. I worked really hard to distill the methods into a format that people can learn and put to use right away. There's a quote from Buckminster Fuller. It says, if you, if you want to teach people a new way of thinking, don't just try to teach them. Don't bother trying to teach them. Instead, give them a tool, the use of which will lead to new ways of thinking. So in the courses, there are presentations. that are about 15, 20 minutes long each with slides and uh, commentary. They're like TED-style talks and then lots of downloadable exhibit templates, editable exhibit templates, step-by-step toolkits, white papers, the rationale behind all of this, and then how to put it all to use in a step-by-step fashion that trial teams can put to use, whether I ever have the privilege of working with them on a case directly or not.
0: And I'm so glad you did that, because we're all, we're doing it, my my, my whole firm is is going through your course, and it's, You know, I don't even care about the CLA credit, the return on investment Mm -hmm. I'm going to get from, you know, us all being able to be on the same team, us being able to use these. Mm -hmm. We we are creating these. Someone in my office is creating some exhibit we learn from you every day. I'm so excited. I mean, we use them in depositions. We use them in, you know, just all kinds of things. Sonia is the most brilliant visual person. Mallory does a lot. I'm not as good at it as they are. The other thing, because of the step-by-step instructions and templates, you know, we would have such a struggle— Working with graphic artists, they'd want to do things their way mm-hmm. or they learn something and, you know, they'd look pretty, but they wouldn't be the, the ideal for the persuasive the strategy. Yeah. strategy. And so it's teaching like, this is the font I want you to use. This is the size. This is the color. Yep. You know, because you, I mean, we haven't talked about it here and I don't want to necessarily, we have defense lawyers to listen to give every secret away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, color, spacing, font. Uh, It all matters. It all matters. The
1: the big picture matters and all those little details matter. And I've worked on enough cases for long enough. I'm in my 17th year of doing this work. I've thought about it all. And it's all been tested and vetted through these countless uh, cases, trials, mediations that these exhibits have been put to use. I, I get the feedback. It's a constantly evolving body of work. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, I wanted to make my courses as practical as possible. And you're absolutely right. The CLE is icing on the cake because the real value is in the content.
0: The real value is in the content. The real value is, frankly, the better results you're going to get. Yeah. It will pay for itself pretty quickly if you have decent cases. Definitely. And it just, not only does it help you teach, it also identifies the holes in your case. So you can fill Mm -hmm. them in. Well, Amy, thank you so much uh, for coming on today. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Me too. I say reconnecting with you. I I saw you in Napa a few months ago, Mm -hmm. but I always love seeing you. And thank you for coming on Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive plaintiff lawyer only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation.
2: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership.